move through the Bible chronologically, how God restored Israel from exile. Now recall that Judah had three steps of destruction that brought them into exile, but also there are three steps of restoration for Judah and Israel coming out of exile. So we've already looked at the first step of restoration together, and that was in the beginning part of Ezra. Which leader was involved in the first step of restoration with the returning exiles? Does anyone remember? Zerubbabel, that's right. And under Zerubbabel, not only did the returning exiles build for themselves homes again back in the promised land, but they also restored the sacrificial worship. They re-inaugurated the feasts and they rebuilt God's temple. And in all of this, even though the people were acting, it was really God who was doing everything, as Ezra has emphasized to us. God was moving the hearts of the kings, God was moving the hearts of the people, and he was granting the Jews favor. So this, not, this happened not only um, under Zerubbabel's leadership with the Jews coming back into the land, but we saw it also in the book of Esther, which takes place after the time of Zerubbabel, before the time that we're looking at today. Under Esther, God allowed Esther and Mordecai, God allowed further favor to the Jews and also the destruction of many of the Jews' enemies. This was God at work. And in both instances where uh, what we saw with Zerubbabel and with Esther and Mordecai, people were being drawn to Yahweh and joining themselves to the Jews because they saw that God's favor was on this people and his power was on display. So Israel, after this second kind of exodus, has gotten a great new start. Though the Jews in Palestine are small in number, Israel looks like it's finally doing what it was supposed to be doing, worshiping God, obeying his commands, drawing the nations to join themselves to God, and then experience God's blessing. So everything is going well. But now some time has gone by, and Ezra appears on the scene. Ezra is also going to journey back to Israel with a group of exiles in the second step of restoration. And when he arrives, what Ezra finds will be a shock to him. And it's going to dishearten him. And then what will Ezra do? And how will Israel react to Ezra? And what do all these events mean when it comes to Israel's ongoing relationship with God? That's really what we're looking at today. The title of today's lesson is Restoring God's Law. Here's our outline. Today we're going to basically look at the second half of the book of Ezra. We'll overview the information we see in Ezra 7-8 about Ezra's return journey to Jerusalem and to the surrounding area. And then look more closely at Ezra 9. And then we'll look more closely at Ezra 10. And then we'll consider what this book was meant to communicate to the Jews and what it communicates to us, how we should apply it. Let's pray before we continue. Our God, we thank you for this word. I pray that you'd help me to be able to explain it. And God, I pray that we'd be affected by it as you meant. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, please open your Bibles to Ezra 7. And we're going to read a small section of this chapter, but then we're going to overview the rest of it and some of chapter 8. So Ezra 7 is page 489 in the Pew Bible. We're going to read verses 1 to 10, where we're introduced to our main person, Ezra. Follow along with me as I read. So this is Ezra 7, verses 1 to 10. Now after these things, that is, the events involving Zerubbabel and Ezra 1 to 6, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, there went up Ezra, son of Zeruiah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Mariah, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eliezer, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which Yahweh, God of Israel, had given. And the king granted all he requested because the hand of Yahweh, his God, was upon him. 
some of the sons of Israel and some of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. He came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first of the month, he began to go up from Babylon, and on the first of, or on the, first of the first month, he began to go up from Babylon, and on the first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, because the good hand of his God was upon him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of Yahweh and to practice it, and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. All right, notice a few things with me on just this brief little portion. We've jumped forward in time from the completion of Israel's temple, Israel's new temple around 515 BC, and that was under King Darius. We're now in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, around 464 BC. This then is about 50 years later. And we finally meet the book's author, Ezra, and immediately we're given his genealogy. You may notice Ezra's ancestry as it's presented here, goes back to which important person? Aaron. And Aaron was, is the line of Aaron that is the line of the priests. You also may notice that Zadok is in Ezra's lineage. God, at various points, took people out of the line of the priesthood. He said, your family is no longer going to be part of the priests, and he's going to give it to a different family. And Zadok was the one that God eventually said, no, it's going to be from this line. And so Ezra is both in the line of Aaron and he's in the line of Zadok. So he is in the uh, God-ordained line of Levitical priests. So Ezra is a priest. But Ezra, notice, is also a scribe. Verse 6 says that Ezra is skilled in the law of Moses. And that's what a scribe is. A scribe is an expert in the law or an expert in the scriptures. Notice that Ezra, too, experiences the sovereign favor of God. King Artaxerxes gives Ezra whatever Ezra requests, because the text says, the hand of Yahweh was upon Ezra. It was on Ezra. Ezra travels with a group of Jews back to Jerusalem, a group, that's, or a group that includes regular Jews, priests, Levites, and temple personnel. And it's quite a trip. Ezra leaves Babylon, where the Jews are, to go to Jerusalem in the first of the first month, and arrives on the first of the fifth month. So it's a thousand mile journey, about four months to complete. But the group makes it safely to Jerusalem because as verse nine says, the good hand of God was upon him. There's that phrase again. The last verse of this section tells us something about Ezra's heart. What is Ezra's passion? It is to study Yahweh's law, to do it and to teach it to Israel. Now notice verse 10 begins with the word for. This indicates part of the reason why God's good hand is upon Ezra. Even to bring Ezra to Jerusalem. God brings Ezra, who is passionate about teaching, to Jerusalem. God is bringing Ezra to teach. Does Jerusalem need a passionate lover and teacher of God's law? Well, we'll come back to that question. But notice here, Ezra is introduced into the narrative and notice how God paves the way for Ezra and those with Ezra to reach Jerusalem. The rest of this chapter give details about the decrees of Artaxerxes given on behalf of Ezra. Artaxerxes gives authority to Ezra to teach in Jerusalem, to set up a Jewish government and administration, to punish offenses against God's law and against the king's law, even using capital punishment. He gives authority for Ezra to bring gifts and offerings from the king and from the exiles to Jerusalem, and also to ask for and acquire whatever else was necessary for the temple from the magistrates already around the land of Jerusalem. Ezra chapter 8 gives more information about the thousand-mile journey that Ezra and those with him undertake. If you just look at the beginning of chapter 8, you may notice there's a number of, or there's more genealogical information. We get some gene genealogical information about the leading men and their families that went up with Ezra. We also see that the whole group fasts and prays for God's protection before they set out on their journey. They are traveling without escort. Why are they doing such a thing? Well, Ezra 8 verses 21 to 23 explains. Look at those two verses or those three verses. Ezra 8 verses 21 to 23. Ezra says, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, 
that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for us, our little ones, and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way, because we had said to the king, The hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him, but his power and his anger are against all those who forsake him. So we fasted and sought our God concerning this matter, and he listened to our entreaty. Now those words are going to be key for what we see in the rest of this book. But this is why they went up without escort, and God and his good providence brought them safely to Jerusalem. And when they get there, the very end of Ezra 8 tells us that the group offered sacrifices to Yahweh. So again, we're seeing so far in this book that nearly everything that's happening with Israel and the returning exiles is pretty encouraging. God is moving the hearts of many people to benefit the Jews. God protects the Jews. God brings the Jews back into the land. And it's just as Ezra says, God's favor, God favors those who seek him, but burns with anger against those who forsake him. But then we arrive to Ezra 9. And this is where we're going to start really our in-depth look. So let's look at Ezra 9, verses 1 to 15. That's the entire chapter. Follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 1. Ezra 9. Now when these things had been completed, the princes approached me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands, according to their abominations, those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. When I heard about this matter... I tore my garment and my robe and pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me, and I sat appalled until the evening offering. But at the evening offering, I rose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn, and I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to Yahweh my God. And I said, O oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads, and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt, and on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the king of the lands, their kings of the lands, to the sword to captivity, and to plunder, and to open shame, as it is this day. But now for a brief moment, grace has been shown from Yahweh, our God, to leave us an escaped remnant, and to give us a peg in this holy place, that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. For we are slaves, yet in our bondage our God has not forsaken us, but has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us reviving, to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, the land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations which have filled it from end to end, and with their impurity. So now do not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or their prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land, and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. After all that has come upon us, for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since you, our God, have requited us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us an escaped remnant as this. Shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with the peoples 
who commit these abominations. Would you not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there is no remnant nor any who escape? O Yahweh, God of Israel, you are righteous, for we have been left an escaped remnant as it is this day. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this. All right, let's start our analysis of this passage with basic observations. Soon after arriving in Jerusalem, while Ezra is probably still at the temple, so they've just finished doing the sacrifices, Ezra learns that the people have seriously compromised. They've taken foreign wives for themselves and for their sons. According to verses 1 to 2, what has made this compromise even more heinous? They have intermarried. That is the compromise. But there's another aspect to this intermarriage that just makes it even worse. That's right. The leaders, the princes and the leaders, have been foremost in this compromise. They are the ones who are leading the intermarriage. And it's not just the leaders, but in verse 1 tells us the priests and the Levites, they have also intermarried. If anybody shouldn't be intermarrying, it's the holy priests. But they're doing it, the leaders are doing it, and all Israel is taking part. And so you can understand Ezra's reaction. He tears his garment, he tears his robe, he pulls hair out from his head and his beard. must have been pretty painful. And he sits down silent and appalled until evening. He just sits there. At the time of the evening offering, Ezra gets on his knees at the temple and he raises his hands in prayer to God. Now, what does he tell God? We just read it, but notice a couple different things. Ezra identifies himself with his people. He doesn't say they've sinned. He says, we've sinned. We, oh God, your people Israel have sinned terribly against you. And he recounts how this has been Israel's pattern in the past and how they're Sin previously resulted in their judgment and exile. He acknowledges, Ezra acknowledges that God gave Israel grace in the midst of their deserved judgment. He granted favor to the Jews. He allowed a remnant to come back and restore the temple in Jerusalem. He says, God, did you did not punish us as our iniquities really deserved. But, Ezra says, how has Israel responded to this judgment and to this kindness from God? by directly violating God's command not to intermarry with the peoples of the land. Ezra admits that such behavior, if it continues, must naturally end up in judgment again, but this time with absolutely no reason to expect any mercy from God. And he ends, Ezra ends his prayer by confessing, Yahweh, you are righteous and we are guilty. And that's where the chapter ends. Now let's pause and ask a couple of interpretive interpretation questions. We've talked about this before, but let's just clarify again. God is not and has never been against interracial marriage. All people are one race, as we know. We all descend from Adam. There's nothing wrong with two people of different ethnicities or nationalities or skin colors from marrying. And as proof, we can just look to the two non-Jewish women who were pronounced righteous and are notably in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Which two women are those? There's Ruth and Rahab. Ruth and Rahab. Rahab was a Canaanite. Ruth was a Moabite. And they were joined to Israel. They were obviously displayed as righteous. They showed faith in Yahweh. And they're in the line of Christ. So God's not against people of mixed ethnicity marrying. So why did God prohibit Israel's intermarriage with foreigners? That's right. It comes down to idolatry. It has nothing to do with ethnicity. It was a law in the Torah 
that God said, don't intermarry with the people of the land because they are idol worshipers. And when you intermarry with them, they will draw you away from me. And we can see this directly. Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 to 4. I'll read it to you. Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 to 4. God says, Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of Yahweh will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. So this... This is about idolatry. This is about not marrying idol worshipers. And this is true even for Christians today. God commands that true believers only marry true believers. And that's in 1 Corinthians 7.39. Only in the Lord may a Christian marry. And again, this is not about maintaining some sort of pure ethnicity. It's about maintaining pure worship towards God. And that's what we're seeing here with the situation in Ezra. Now, another question. We've talked about Israel's return from exiles as like being a new start, a second exodus, a second chance to settle in Canaan. Well, as we're witnessing with Ezra, what is so tragic, at least what we're seeing right now, about Israel's new start? That's right. It is like a new start. And they do get a chance to come back into the land. But they are also doing what they did the first time. It's like a repeat. It's not just a repeat that they get to come back, but it's also a repeat in terms of their compromise. They're intermarrying with the people of the land, which is like what they did the first time. And so we see that What looked so promising is suddenly not looking so promising. It looks like it's the same old Israel. But so much has happened between now and then. How could they do this now? Ezra is shocked and ashamed at Israel's behavior. And we as readers, especially from what we've seen in chapters 1 to 7, or 1 to 8, we should feel the shock as well. After all that's happened, after all of Israel's experiences with God, after all God's blessings, after God's chastening, after the momentous judgment of their being removed from the land, and after God amazingly and graciously bringing a remnant back into the land, Israel is still not clinging to God in obedience? How hard is Israel's heart? But perhaps, perhaps there is still hope for Israel. Because we've got another chapter in this book, so let's read what happens next. Look at Ezra 10. We'll read just verses 1 to 17, though I will make some comment about what appears in the second half of chapter 10. So Ezra 10, starting in verse 1. Let's see if there's any hope for Israel in this situation. Verse 1. Now, while Ezra was praying and making confession, weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God, very large assembly, men, women, and children, gathered to him from Israel. For the people wept bitterly. Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. So now let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility, but we will be with you. Be courageous and act. Then Ezra rose and made the leading priests, the Levites, and all Israel take oath that they would do according to this proposal. So they took the oath. Then Ezra rose from before the house of God, and went into the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib. And though he went there, he did not eat bread nor drink water, for he was mourning over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. They made a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and that whoever would not come within three days, according to the counsel of the leaders and the elders, all his possessions should be forfeited, and he himself 
excluded from the assembly of the exiles. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and the heavy rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful and have married foreign wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now, therefore, make confession to Yahweh, God of your fathers, and do his will, and separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. And then all the assembly replied with a loud voice, That's right. As you have said, so it is our duty to do. But there are many people. It is the rainy season, and we are not able to stand in the open, nor can the task be done in one or two days, for we have transgressed greatly in this matter. Let our leaders represent the whole assembly, and let all those in our cities who have married foreign wives come at appointed times, together with the elders and judges of each city, until the fierce anger of our God on account of this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan the son of Asahel and Josiah the son of Tikva opposed this, with Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, supporting them. But the exiles did so, and Ezra the priest selected men who were heads of the fathers' households, for each of their fathers' households, all of them by name. So they convened on the first day of the tenth month to investigate the matter. They finished investigating all the men who had married foreign wives by the first day of the first month. Okay, let's observe again. Ezra's public humiliation and prayer, that we saw in chapter 9, it causes many Israelites to gather around him and weep bitterly. Now, one of these Jews stands up and speaks for the group, a man by the name of Shechaniah. Notice his words. He confesses, the people of Israel have been unfaithful, just as Ezra has said. Yet Shechaniah says, there is yet hope. He suggests that Ezra caused the people to covenant to put away their wives and their children of idolatry. And he promises that the people will be with Ezra if Ezra will be courageous and act. Ezra complies with Shechaniah's suggestion. And those present with Ezra all swear to put away their foreign wives and children. Ezra, though still distraught over Israel's sin, refuses to eat or drink but makes a proclamation that all the exiles of Judah must assemble in Jerusalem within three days or else forfeit all their possessions and be excluded from the assembly. That's a pretty serious threat. But remember, Ezra has authority from Artaxerxes to act this way. Understandably, people don't want to lose their possessions, so everybody shows up in three days. It's the 20th of the ninth month, which happens to be a day of heavy rain. And notice the people are trembling as Ezra confronts them. Ezra tells them how they have sinned, and he calls on them to separate from their foreign wives. Now notice the response of the people. On the one hand, they say, you're right, we have done wrong. We have done wrong, and we will separate. But on the other hand, they say, it can't be done right away, because it's raining, a lot of people here, and great has our transgression been in the matter. People suggest instead to appoint leaders to collect the names of the offenders and make a series of appointments for the people until, and, and conduct those appointments until all the prohibited marriages have been investigated and dealt with. We hear that four Jews, including one Levite, do not support this plan. But Ezra and the rest of the people do agree to the plan, and cases begin the first day of the 10th month and are finished on the first day of the first month. So we got 12 months in a year. How long did it take to investigate and process the necessary divorces? How many? Well, it began the first day of the 10th month. It proceeded to the 11th month, and it was finished on the first day of the 12th month. So just two months. So the 10th and 11th month, or the, yeah, the 10th and 11th month. Wait, no. Oh, math is always not my strong point. So 10th, 11th, and 12th. So I guess it would be three months. Three months, yes, because it's finished on the first month. Okay, so three months. Let me just double check that. Okay. 
Yes, three months. Okay, so that's even longer than I thought it took. <clears throat> yeah, so they finished in three months. They finished investigating all the cases. Now, the final part of chapter 10, which we didn't read, records the names of various persons who had to divorce their wives. You can see it right at the very end of our reading. We get a whole bunch of names. This list includes sons of the priests. It includes Levites. It includes temple singers and various other Israelites. In total, there are 113 names recorded, 113 persons. Verse 44, the very last verse of this chapter, concludes the account by saying, all these people married foreign wives, and some of them had had children with them. So we've made these observations. Let's interpret again. Based on what we see, was the sin of idolatrous intermarriage a big problem in the returned Jewish community, or was it a small one? It was a big one. It was a big one. We already saw the leaders, the priests, and the temple personnel were all involved. We see that it couldn't have been dealt with, or it couldn't be dealt with all at once because so many people had violated the command. We have the names of 113 people recorded as offenders who repented, but it's possible that there were more people than just these 113. These are just the ones who are noted down for us, and they may even simply be just the leaders. It could be more people than this, because after all, it took three months just to investigate and process all the divorces. So great was Israel's transgression in this matter. Not just who committed it, but how many people committed it. And remember, there aren't that many exiles in the first place. Exiles that have returned. So the exiles have committed a very great evil. And yet, Shechaniah says, the exiles still have hope. How can they still have hope? In what is their hope? Yes, uh, Craig. They they are the remnant. They are the exiles. But in what can they? Why should they have hope after they've committed so great a transgression? God has preserved them up to this point, and that's a sign of grace. But what else gives them hope? Covenant promises and the mercy that is involved in that covenant. Because what did Ezra say? The Lord gives favor to those who seek him, but to those who forsake him, his anger burns against them. So if they seek the Lord now, there's still opportunity for the Lord's favor. That is, if they repent, there's still hope. Because God is the God, is the kind of God that is merciful. He is the one who will restore those who repent and those who turn to him. On the basis of God's character, on the basis of the covenant that he's expressed with Israel, there is hope for them. There is yet hope in repentance. Even though they've committed a great transgression, there's hope in repentance. Now still, how is it that so many Jews, including the leaders, the priests, the Levites, how is it that they ended up violating God's clear prohibition against pagan intermarriage? I mean, was the command not clear? How could they have done this? Well, we could speculate a little bit as to possible motives or possible situations. Perhaps they were ignorant. Perhaps there was an inadequate teaching of God's law since they came back. Maybe there weren't people doing a good job teaching the law. We know that priests and Levites were some of the offenders in this matter, so they're not going to do a good job of teaching the Lord's command in this area. So maybe the people were ignorant. Or maybe they weren't. Maybe they knew God's commands, but they just didn't think of it as being that important. They had the sacrifices in the temple again, after all, so that should cover any sort of offenses that they do. Or maybe that's what they were thinking. Perhaps they rationalized their behavior in some way, thinking that their marriages were the exception to the rule. <laughs> the line of thinking, excuse me, goes along something like this. Yes, my betrothed is probably a bad spiritual influence, but I can handle her. And maybe through our marriage, I can lead her away from her superstitions to actually worship the true God. And perhaps some of these marriages were brought about by a desire for practical benefit. The line of thinking goes something like this. She comes from a very good family. Her parents are rich. They're already established in the land. I'm not established in the land. And if I want to make it, I need I need some support. I need to have some good family connections. 
So maybe there is a practical reason. Pardon me just a second. Or maybe, or maybe it was simply fleshly lust. They're saying to themselves, she's really pretty. I want her. Doesn't matter what her family is. Doesn't matter what her religious ideas are. I want to have her. Perhaps it was a mix of these things. We don't know. We're not told. Israel doesn't give any excuse because there is no excuse. There's no, there's no reason for them to be able to justify their behavior. God's law forbids idolatrous intermarriage without exception. And yet they transgressed this law and they transgressed it greatly. Now, we, we hear that four people oppose the plan to investigate and dissolve the marriages by appointment. Why did they do this? Again, we don't know. It could be for a good reason. Probably not. <laughs> I suspect it wasn't a good reason because the plan that the assembly proposes seems like a very reasonable plan. And so probably these men dissented because they wanted to hold on to these relationships. But we're not told for sure. Maybe they thought there was a better way to handle it. Or maybe they said, no, we got to do this now. Maybe there was a good reason, but probably not. And they're noted, they're noted by name as opposing the, the plan that's presented. Now, another question we have to ask here is that the New Testament teaches that if a believer is married to an unbelieving spouse and the unbelieving spouse is willing to live with that believer, then the believer must not seek a divorce. Why then, under Ezra's charge, do the people divorce their unbelieving spouses and mass? How could that be okay? Yes, I think that's one of the ways we, we could answer, and I think that's a good answer to this question, even though it seems basic. It's just a different situation. It's a unique situation. Actually, I think there are two main ways we can answer this question. I'll, I'll mention one first, and then I'll get back to the one that, um, that someone just mentioned. One way we can answer this question as to why Israel, or why these exiles are divorcing their spouses and allowed to do that, called to do that, even though Christians are not in the New Testament, is that God dealt differently with Israel as his chosen nation of physical descendants from Abraham than God deals with the church, or how God commands the church. For example, God commanded Israel to execute various kinds of heinous sinners and blasphemers. That's in the law. But the church has no such command. We're not supposed to kill blasphemers. Also, God tolerated, though he never approved, certain practices in the nation of Israel, like concubinage and polygamy. Now, the church received no such toleration. It was never part of God's design, but God didn't say, all right, I'll, I'll tolerate it in the church as well. No, he says that should not even have a place. So we see that there are certain things, just from those two examples, there are certain things that God did with Israel that were a little different than he's done with the church or that he does with the church. Here we may be seeing another instance of that, that God allowed divorce in the case of idolatry for Israel, even though that's not something that he allows for the church. Now we should note, according to the law for Israel, if a person's spouse actually encouraged him to seek other gods other than Yahweh, According to the law, that spouse is to be put to death. So divorce would actually be a less severe way of dealing with the situation that the law calls for. But, as uh, someone mentioned, it might simply be a unique situation. Another way to answer this question regarding Israel's divorces is to simply say this is a unique moment in Israel's history. Maybe. For God's own, God's own reasons, God permitted this mass divorce because of Israel's situation. They're small in number. They've only recently been reestablished in the land. This kind of divorce was not to be a normative practice. It was not to be a policy for Israel. But it is something allowed in this specific instance, something called for by God in this specific instance. It's not a command to be obeyed or imitated going forward. It's just something unique right here. Remember, and this is an, a, a good principle for us to keep in mind, just because something happens in narrative in the Bible 
even when godly people do it or repentant people do it, does not mean that Christians for all time should do it, or even Jews for all time should do it. Sometimes God is merely doing something, a un- or doing a unique act at a particular time with a particular person for a particular reason. So for either one of those reasons, it was okay for them to do this in this instance, but that's not something that we do as believers today. Israel's marital separation was prescribed by God in this situation. Believers today must continue in marriages with unbelieving spouses if those spouses agree to stay faithfully married to them. But a follow-up question we could ask is, how could the divorcing husbands merely throw throw out their wives and kids like that? Well, I don't know if they threw them out. We don't know what kind of provisions they, the divorcing husbands made for their ex-wives and their children. I imagine there was something that they provided for them. They didn't just put them on the street. Yet, even so, it's not like even with these provisions that these family separations were not going to be traumatic. They were. This was going to be a painful separation. This was going to be a huge life disruption. Yet this pain was not God's fault. There would be no trauma here if Israel had simply obeyed in the first place, but it stayed obedient. But now that they have sinned, it's important that they go back to God, that they seek him no matter the personal cost. So if it means separation from wives and children, then so be it. Now let's think about chapters 7 to 10 together. Ezra's arrival back into the land was certainly timely. Because think about it, what would have happened if Ezra hadn't come to Jerusalem? Israel might have continued on in their intermarriage and compromised in even greater ways, and they would have come under God's judgment. But as we saw, why is it that Ezra came to Jerusalem? Back in chapter 7, why why were we told that Ezra journeyed to Babylon and made it there safely. His desire was to teach. His desire and his passion was to teach. And yet it wasn't simply about what Ezra wanted. What else did we see in that chapter? The hand of God was upon him. It was God who had uh, favored and blessed and brought him to have such a passion. And it was God who also caused him and many others to set out for Jerusalem and to make it there safely. It was God who was bringing this all about. Yes, he was using Ezra and Ezra's passion, but it was God who was bringing it all about. And this has been one of the great themes of Ezra. God is sovereignly working all things together for the favor of his people. And so if it was God who brought Ezra to Jerusalem, and Ezra was the one who brought the people back to God, then essentially, who was the one bringing the people back? It was God himself. God was mercifully confronting his people and drawing them back to himself. God was showing kindness to them. God was showing yet more favor to them. Not just saying, all right, you're blessed. I'll give you some protection. But he says, I'm gonna, I see you going astray. I'll bring you back. I'll send Ezra to you, someone who is skilled and zealous for my law. And we come now to the end of the book of Ezra, and the end is somewhat abrupt. Israel readily repents after the confrontation of Ezra via God's law. And that's great news. And yet, the nature and extent of Israel's previous compromise is a bit alarming. If we employ the marriage metaphor that so frequently describes Israel and God in the Bible, it's like Israel has been a notorious adulteress that God finally divorced, and he exposed her to heavy punishment and humiliation. Israel, after experiencing this, repented, and God took her back as wife again and blessed her with his love. Yet, already, Israel's been caught seeing other men. Now, she's quickly repented. She's repented again after being caught, but that's a somewhat foreboding development. What will Israel do in the future? 
She has this past. She's gone back again, but she's repented. What will she do in the future? And I believe that's the question that Ezra ends his work with. That's what he's left for the reader and his audience to consider. And remember, he's writing to the returned exiles in this work. And so he's essentially asking them, after all this, you exiles of Judah and Israel, what will you be? Will you finally be faithful as God's wife? Will you finally learn from your mistakes? Will you finally, once and for all, cling to God as you clearly ought? Or will you go back to how you've always acted? Will you compromise and ignore all the judgments God enacted in the past? Will you ignore all the mercy and goodness he's poured out on you, even by bringing you back from exile? Even after all of this, will you still be unfaithful? And your answer, O Israel, starts with how you treat God's law. Will you tremble before his word? You may have noticed the word trembling appeared a couple of times in the chapters that we read. Will you tremble before God's word? Will you be diligent to know his law, to do it, even in the command to not intermarry with the people of the land? Those are the questions Ezra lays out before Israel through this book. And over the next two weeks, we'll look at how Israel responds under the leadership of Nehemiah. We'll look at that over the next two lessons. But this is the question. This is the question Ezra leaves his audience with. And it's the question that we also are left with. What will you do after all of this? Questions or comments on what we've seen today? Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a good way to describe it, Bill. You bring up Jeremiah, and we could bring up a number of the prophets that we've seen so far, even going all the way back to Moses. Why has Israel transgressed in this way? How have they gone so clearly past the line that God put in his law? It's because their hearts have not been changed as a whole. Now, there are some repentant people, and maybe we could say... uh, Certain generations are a little bit more faithful than other generations. But as a whole, it appears, or at least this is what Ezra would have us ponder, it appears that Israel's heart has not yet been changed. They have not yet been circumcised in heart. And not to spoil what we see in the rest of Scripture, but we're going to see as we move along in Nehemiah that this keeps on happening. Israel keeps sliding away, keeps moving away. And this is going to stress Nehemiah out. He's going to say, what are you doing? And we're going to see that even going into the time of Jesus. Israel keeps turning away. And it does go back to what you've expressed, Bill, that the heart has not yet been changed. And God says, God acknowledged that in the prophets, in Jeremiah and other places. And that's why that new covenant and the promises associated with it is so important. Because God says, I will change your heart. You have an obligation to turn to me. And the fact that you're not, even after all this, just shows how wicked you are. And yet, you're not too wicked for me. Or let me say it this way. Despite your great wickedness, I will still change you. And my perfect timing, I will draw you back. Right. So uh, you just mentioned, uh, Bill, I think you're connecting that with a prophecy in Daniel, the 70 weeks prophecy. And there's the connection of how many years between the restoring of the law under Ezra, restoring the the obedience to the commandments again, or at least the enforcement of the commandments and the coming of Messiah. So, yeah, there's God has even revealed. And this is what we talked about last time. God has revealed his mysteries, even how things are going to move along. 
And even what we see here is connected with God's ultimate purpose to send the king, the Messiah, even the ancient of days to come to Israel, work for Israel's atonement with a perfect sacrifice or, or bring atonement for Israel with a perfect sacrifice, inaugurate that new covenant. And then later on in time, we're going to see that covenant fully implemented and the people of Israel fully saved. Yes, um, in the back or in the middle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. 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 Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned some good things. Thank you. Uh, I'll just repeat them. Uh, and briefly, one is exploring more why there's a difference between the New Testament and Old Testament when it comes to a marriage with someone who doesn't follow God. And as you pointed out rightly, that the principle that is guiding the New Testament command is um, as, as perhaps people getting saved at different times, one spouse before another, that marriage bond is not to be dissolved because there's the continual opportunity to share the gospel with that spouse and to share the gospel and to lead the children in the gospel. And that is the situation that, that Christians are in going forward. We don't say, okay, that was unique to that time. And then we have this other thing that was unique to Israel's time, but what is it today? Well, we're in that second situation where the gospel is going out uh, all across the world and God is drawing different people to himself. So he says, if that spouse is willing to live with you, then continue in that situation because you have the opportunity to sanctify that person, to be a witness to that person, and to be a witness to your children. So that's definitely true. And then you also mentioned how we should remember that not everybody was bad. Even in the situation in Ezra, there's great compromise. Not only do we have people repenting when the, when the compromise is pointed out, but there are people who didn't compromise. There are people who reported this sin to Ezra and asked Ezra to do something about it. So you're right. Um, you're right to mention that. There, that is also a principle for us today. Well, we'll talk about that in just a second when we consider application a little bit more. But that's one of the things we're called to as believers as well. To when we see a brother in a fault, to go after him, to bring him back. We shouldn't just say, "Oh, well, there goes another one, another apostate," or, uh, "Oh, I can't believe he did that. What a terrible person. I don't want to talk to him anymore." We should feel some shock and we should feel sorrow over sin, especially sin in the church body. But we should also look to restore, knowing that that doesn't mean that person is not saved. It may be that they've just fallen into a, a trespass and they need to be lifted out. And that is a call for believers to do. So when it comes to Israel, we see different points um, 
we see certain amount of faithfulness and repentance at different times in Israel's history. There are sometimes a more faithful generation and a less faithful generation. But within that generation, there are more faithful people and less faithful people. There were true believers in Israel this time, even in Jerusalem, perhaps true believers who were compromising. And then maybe some who weren't true believers who were compromising. So, yes, there were those differing levels there, and it's useful to keep that in mind. Other questions or comments? I think we can take maybe one more. Yes. Uh, I think it's Joe. <laughs> yeah. You, are you saying, are, should we consider that an act of obedience? Yeah. I, I think we should. I mean, that's the way that it's described in this book. We've been unfaithful, but now we will turn and seek the Lord by by your counsel, Ezra, and by what the law says by separating from these wives. So it was an act of repentance and obedience to separate from these wives. Again, it's a little bit weird because that situation was not specifically discussed in the law. It does say actually to put to death someone who's going to lead you to idolatry. But in this unique situation or as a, as a lesser form of dealing with a situation it was divorce rather than execution. That was that was the mark of obedience and repentance. If you have other questions or comments, you can definitely email me afterwards. But what does all this mean for us? Already, we've explored, I think, a couple of uh, principles that we see from this, from the Book of Ezra and from this experience in Israel's history that do apply to us today. But here's some other questions for you to consider as we wind down our lesson today. So five questions. What does this all mean for us? Well, first of all, put yourself a little bit in Israel's situation. After all God has done for you, do you still walk unfaithfully toward God? Do you act like Israel, always drifting back toward the same sins, though you have supposedly repented time after time? Israel did this as a nation, ultimately, because her heart was still uncircumcised. So if we're doing what Israel did as a nation, then is our heart still uncircumcised? Are we still enslaved to sin? Jesus Christ brings freedom. Have we found yet that freedom from bondage to sin through Jesus? Another question to consider. Number two, have you been ignoring an area of compromise in your life? If someone were to tell Ezra, if you were around today, or if someone were to tell Pastor Bobby, or if Jesus were here, and someone were to tell Jesus about what's going on in your life, would he be shocked? Would he be appalled? Would he want to weep? Would he feel the need to come after you, to bring you back? Question three, does the sin of your people make you feel distraught? That is, does your love for your brethren, like the Apostle Paul's, make you feel intensely concerned about how people might be led away from Christ into sin? Are you zealous then, and are you full of love to see people protected and brought back whenever they slip? Does your heart grieve over the self-destructive sin that you see in others around you? And not just in the church, but even in our nation, in America. Do you hate to see God so dishonored in America with ungrateful rebellion? But not simply hate, but are you grieved? Are you willing to reach out to your countrymen, to try to rescue them, to plead with them, be reconciled to God? Does the sin of your brethren and of your countrymen, does it affect you? Number four, if you are unmarried, have you been drifting toward a mixed marriage? A marriage of light with darkness, Christ with Belial. We talked about, as, a, as Steve mentioned, we talked about what, what to do if you're already in that marriage. God says continue in it as long as that person's willing to live with you. But if you're not, God says don't, don't get close to it. Don't seek it out. And yet, are you... If you're in that situation, are you allowing your heartstrings to become entangled 
in a relationship that you know ultimately will not be honoring to Jesus and will actually drag you down in your spiritual walk. We should not embrace missionary dating or missionary marriage. And then finally, do you love Yahweh? Do you love Yahweh even more when you consider all the ways that he is sovereignly kind and loving to you by providing for you, by blessing you, by refining you, by drawing his servants to minister to you and even reprove you? Do you thank the Lord for his discipline and reproof? For we know as Proverbs and Hebrews say, he whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. It was an act of love for God to bring Israel back through Ezra. And it's, a la- it's an act of love for God to bring you back if you fall into a sin or even to save you in the first place. Do you love the Lord? Do you love Yahweh because of that? That's all for this week. Next week, we look at step three of Israel's restoration under Nehemiah. And let me briefly close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this word. We pray that you'd help us apply it, meditate on it, and to be thankful for what you've done and do for us. And Lord, to also be affected by and concerned over the sin that we see um, that, that we see around us. Lord, I pray that you protect your church. I pray that the brethren would be continually going after the brethren, not to attack, but to restore that there might be continual harmony and love in your body, just as you have meant. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'll see you all next week. Thank you.